Yeah, he was creeping, so she figured out a way to make Ladybird real pissed at him. <laughs> Ladybird. <laughs> that was Isn't her nickname, that... right? <laughs> I think that was uh, LBJ's wife's uh, uh, God name. damn it. All right, Jeremy, edit that out. I can't get my uh, first lady facts <laughs> wrong on a podcast. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, NASA aesthetic faux machine designer for MGM Cinema, Peter Cook. (laughs) Uh, I have absolutely nothing for that. You have stumped me thoroughly, Sean. (laughs) That's fine. I mean... We never seem to have too many amazing reactions to these. It's kind of just, I don't know. It's a fun little thing that we do. We don't have to go too far into it, right? I am glad that I'm with MGM and NASA, though. Yeah, two respectable organizations to be associated with. Indeed. Well, we are also associating with our other co-host this evening, and we just so happen to be joined by Honorary Doctor of Regional Variants and Greeting Customs, Jeremy Ruggles. What's up? Well, that's just perfect. Hey guys, let's talk about a record. Thank you. Peter, I was hoping we could I was hoping we could go real deep this week, like maybe way far into someone's catalog, maybe like the twelfth LP in someone's catalog. I don't know if you're on that same wavelength too. Yeah, twelve sounds absolutely perfect. Okay. What do you got for us? Well, boys, I've got good news. We have ourselves a genuine country LP today. Really now? We've been pushing at it for a long time, and I, I believe we finally cracked the code. We have Tammy Winnett's 1974 release on Epic, Another Lonely Song. That's just about as country as it gets right there. Indeed. This is this was her 12th studio album released March 18th, 1974 and peaked at number 8 on the Billboard Country Charts. And I want to get rolling right into things by playing the opening track Another Lonely Song. Perfect. my memory it's killing me now and Lord I need him here just to feel him near and hear him breathing still the night goes on and on another long I'm singing No Another lonely song I'm singing. No, don't look down on me. Don't 
keep talking. That's a good song right there, Peter. Yeah, I really like that track. Uh, it kind of crept up on me. Maybe the first time I listened, it didn't necessarily, it didn't get to me maybe the first time that I listened as much as it did on the second and third listens. And now I just really look forward to hearing it when the needle drops. Yeah, definitely. To my ears, I'm hearing a lot of pop and soul influences on this album, which there's always some elements of that on good country albums, but I feel like there's a little more on this one that I'm typically used to hearing. There's a lot of like subtle, unexpected shifts in the arrangement and the harmonies that really make this album sound very fresh and works really well as a complete listen. Yeah, this is 1974, so I imagine that some of the soul of the late 60s and early 70s was probably creeping its way over into the country charts by that point. Yeah, and this is around the time, like we talked about on the Willie episode, where country was starting to broaden its horizons and realize that there was a lot of money to be made in some more crossover styles. Yeah, and Tammy Wynette was just at the top of the game at this point in her career for many years. I mean, she was just a sensation. Yeah. I mean, she's still considered one of like the top five all time great country artists for sure. So that was the titular track from this album. And it was the only single released. It peaked at number one on the billboard country singles chart. I thought that was interesting that like the one single was a number one hit, but they didn't bother doing another single off this record. (laughs) No, I think Woman to Woman came out so soon after this that they were just ready to go with another LP with more songs on it. That's incredible. It was a hit despite her use of the D word. I don't know. I know that we use a lot of colorful language in this and we might not notice something like the word damn in 2020, but in 1974, that was something that some radio stations weren't willing to air. Especially country stations. Yeah. I think that there is a slightly more, dare I say, conservative contingent there you may say that because it's (laughs) a fact basically at this point in time it was her 14th number one solo hit on the country charts and it stayed at number one for two weeks and spending a total of 12 weeks on the charts it's the only song on the album that Wynette has a writing credit on billy sherrill the producer along with songwriter noro wilson also had a hand in writing that tune. Billy Sherrill is the one who had signed Tammy Wynette to Epic and co-wrote Stand By Your Man with her, if either of you have ever heard of that song. Uh, yeah. I think I heard it at the White House. Five times. You were at the White House and heard Stand <laughs> I don't know what that, if that's a reference to something. She sang that for five different presidents I saw. Oh, wow. Well, that's a cool fact. And she apparently sat on Ronald Reagan's lap when she performed it. And like his wife was furious and she was just like, I don't know. Yeah, that was a deliberate move on Tammy's part, apparently, to get him to stop hounding over her. Yeah. Stand By Your Man is undoubtedly probably her signature song. And and she did co-write that one along with Billy Sherrill. Of course, a lot of the themes of her songs are along those lines, Stand By Your Man. Of course, another big hit of hers is D-I-V-O-R-C-E, Divorce. Right, which I know because I recently watched the film Five Easy Pieces, which has a lot of her songs in the soundtrack. Oh, does it? (laughs) Yeah, I guess the the director was a big fan of hers and specifically like loaded the soundtrack with her songs, which was honestly like one of the best elements of that movie. I can't, I can't actually recommend that movie. No, I tried watching that movie about 15 years ago, and I just remember being very bored. Yeah, it's a relic of the past that doesn't deserve the credit it's given as far as I'm concerned. I don't want to share too controversial of an opinion on this podcast. Oh, no. God forbid. <laughs> the uh, But yeah, Tammy Wynette, she, country music was considered, at the time that she started out in the mid to late 1960s, Country music was considered music for the common man, and Tammy Wynette made it music for the common woman as well, saying themes that would directly speak to what a lot of women were going through, struggles, everyday struggles. So yeah, Stand By Your Man, Divorce, I Don't Want to Play House, a lot of her biggest hits were ones that would have been identifiable for the common woman. And there's a track on here that, although it wasn't a hit for Tammy Wynette, I think 
that it falls right into that category. And it's the second song I'd like to listen to. And that is Stayin' Home Woman. Yeah, it's a good one. Let's hear it. I spend half the day cooking, but I wind up having dinner all alone. Because he stopped off with some friends to see just how much they could drink on their way home. By the time he makes it home, the food is just about as cold as I am. And his staying home woman's getting tired of her staying out, man. He ought to be a Texas rancher Cause he sure spreads a lot of bull around Telling how he won the war He made the other side lay all their weapons down But there won't be a big parade tonight When the hero comes marching home again And his stay-at-home woman's getting tired Of her staying out man He's the type of and boast about what little that he's done while he's drinking while he's out with old friends laughing it up and having fun what is he thinking I know that another woman ain't about to ever cross his mind cause when it comes to loving he's coming home Well, the lawn sure needs a cutting and the hedges need to be trimmed by the wall. But each time I mention work to him, he gives me dirty looks and double talk. It's a shame to know the one you love won't hardly even lend a helping hand. And his stay-at-home woman's getting tired of her staying out. Yeah, that song really captures something I dig about Tammy. There's this sort of, as you pointed out, conservative contingent within country and these sort of classic gender roles being portrayed. But beneath that, there's this very human element of longing and loneliness that runs through her music. and. That's the part that I feel like is why, you know, every country singer nowadays still says, you know, Tammy Wynette was a primary inspiration. Yeah, I don't know that anyone did it better than her before her. So she really kind of set the bar pretty high. True. Why was she so heartbroken? We are going to get into that. I know that you always want to hear that story. So I made sure that we're going to really cover that. Well, uh, let's cover this. A little this. bit about that. That backing vocals. Oh, yeah. Who was that on the backing vocals? That gospely, soulful. Beautiful, beautiful segue, because I was just going to mention that that was the Jordanaires. Yeah. The vocal quartet. <laughs> and they worked with a lot of people in Nashville. Like who? And it, Well, there was a guy named Elvis Presley. Oh. They were his primary backing vocalists on both live and in the studio between 1956 and 1972. Then Tammy stole him? Yep, she ganked him and put him on this track. (laughs) Have they done (laughs) other work with her? Are they on other records of hers, or is it just kind of some random spots? No, I'm pretty positive they're on other records of hers as well. Makes sense. Uh, Are they just vocalists, or do they ever do any instrumentation? Do you know? As far as I know, they were just vocalists. Anytime I've seen them credited on a Nashville record, they're strictly like the backing vocalists. Okay, yeah, that's kind of what I had thought. They were on Patsy Cline's Crazy. They're the backing vocalist on that track. Right, right. They also worked with just a few other names. We could That could be a, a whole episode that's just a list. Eddie Arnold, Jim Reeves, Ricky Nelson, and Jeremy's favorite, Ween. Ew. Whoa. Weird. Yeah, they when Ween cut a country record, 12 Golden Country Greats in Nashville, the Jordanaires were on that. Huh. So they have worked with a lot of people. That song was written by a guy named Earl Peanut Montgomery. Do you, do you recognize that name, Peanut Montgomery? No. Negative. Did you watch 
the Tales from the Tour Bus episodes on George Jones and Tammy Wynette? Yeah, I did. I saw the first one, but nobody's seeding the second one. So if anybody has the torrent of the second one, if you could seed it for me, I would appreciate it. Yeah, send that. it to our P.O. box. Or send it to the P.O. box. VHS don't copy, listen to these. No, don't listen to them. That's all illegal and bootlegging. Uh, I'll, uh, you sound I'll very nervous a... right now, Peter. <laughs> yeah. For some reason, I, I think they're listening to us. They're always listening. It's just whether they care. <laughs> yeah. I don't think so. Earl Peanut Montgomery, Peanut to his best friends, he was a very good friend, probably the best friend of George Jones, who, of course, at this time that this record was cut, was the husband of Tammy Wynette. And if you listen to those lyrics, I, it's kind of funny that uh, George Jones' friend is writing the song and giving it to Tammy Wynette, when I think it's very possible. We kind of know that George Jones had a bit of a drinking problem. And by that, I mean he was a full-blown alcoholic. Yeah, infamously so. He was yeah. beyond, he was like psychotically alcoholic and psychotic. Yes, very much so. In fact, he is the one, Peanut is the one who he, took. well, Peanut's one of the people that George Jones shot at. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, he has the story of that in the in Tales from the Tour Bus about George Jones taking a shot at him do with you, a pistol. Do you have a list of people George Jones shot at to read? <laughs> it's a long list. And the thing is, when a lot of people have stories about you shooting at them, that means you're not a very good shot. Truth. <laughs> well, maybe he There's, was when he was sober, but just no one was ever around him when that was the case. No, he, he always seems to miss, thank goodness. But that song was a minor hit for Patsy Sled right around the same time that this version came out. And she was actually the opener for the George Jones and Tammy Wynette show, the, the touring act that they did. And of course, at points, they weren't able to perform because they're, they were such a train wreck. And so she would become, Patsy Sled would become the headliner, funny enough. Uh, she didn't really do a whole lot, though. I, I couldn't really see that she put out many albums past this time period, but her version also featured the Jordanaires on backing vocals. And even though the structure of it is different, it sounds weirdly the same as Tammy Wynette's version. Huh? <laughs> and the Jordanaires are so distinct that that probably is a large reason for that. But Jeremy wants to get into the pain. Why, why does this woman sound so heartbroken in every line that she sings? Yeah, I'm going to go. Yeah, let's let's look into that. I'm going to go kind of go back to her origins. She was born Virginia Wynette Pugh on a farm in Mississippi on May 5th, 1942. So her name, it doesn't seem that she went by Virginia. It seems she went by Wynette. That's what her friends all refer to her as from that time period. Wynette. I've always pronounced it Tammy Wynette, but everyone that talks about her seems to say Wynette. So I'm assuming that when she adopted her stage name, that that continued, Tammy Wynette. I wonder if Wynette is more of a common uh, Midwestern pronunciation. For some reason, we're the ones putting more of a, like a redneck hillbilly twist on it in that case. Tammy Wynette. <laughs> <laughs> so her grandfather owned a lot of land and she picked cotton. There was cotton and corn on that land, and she picked cotton. She wasn't too fond of it, but did it because she had to. Her father died of a brain tumor when she was only nine months old. And he had been a natural musician, never had a lesson in his life, but just kind of picked up a lot of different instruments on his own. And shortly before his death, he requested of Tammy's mother that if Tammy showed any signs of talent, that she received piano lessons. Her mother moved to Memphis to work in a munitions factory, but Wynette stayed on the farm with her grandparents and her mother would send back money for piano lessons. She you know, stayed true to her husband's request. So by the age of 12, Wynette had become a fan of the grand old Opry broadcasts that she could hear. And she played guitar, piano, organ, and flute, all instruments left behind by her father. Like many other artists we featured on this podcast, she sang in her church choir. That was some of her first experiences singing publicly. And funny enough, I found that as she got older and was in high school, she was an all-star basketball player. Nice. I didn't oh, see that. 
Yeah. That was a deep find. And I wondered when I heard that, was was Tammy Wynette tall? She didn't really look tall. No, she was only five foot two. Huh. Yeah, I I remember reading people describing her as very slight and small in size, so that's surprising. Yeah, so I I wanna use this podcast as a platform to say that Tammy Wynette is the Muggsy Bogues of country music. Ooh. She does that spot up three. Can't stop it. <laughs> so Annette married her first husband, Yupel Bird. If, if you want a Southern name, there is a Southern name right there. Yupel Bird. He was a construction worker, often out of work. She was 17. And she had her first child six months later. She had her second daughter in 1962, and she began training as a beautician in Tupelo, Mississippi, where she learned to be a hairdresser. Now... Even when she was a mega star, she continued to renew her cosmetology license every single year for the rest of her life in case things didn't work out. I had read that. That's so cool. <laughs> Always have a backup plan. That's, that's good. No wonder she was so successful. In 1963, she moved to Memphis, Tennessee, and she got a job working in a bar. The owners there allowed her to sing for customers, and this was the first time that she really sang anywhere solo, you know, apart from church. She always got a warm reception to her singing from the patrons, and it made her think that maybe she could make this country musician, this country singer career work out. But by 1965, she was pregnant with her third child, and she desperately needed to get out of her marriage with Yupel Bird. He didn't support her aspirations to be a country singer, and of course the story goes that as she was driving away from him, he told her, dream on, baby. And then years later, when she was a megastar, he became a huge fan of hers and showed up at a show asking for an autograph, and she signed it, dream on, baby. <laughs> I read that, too. I love that. It's such a good story. <laughs> she really stuck it to him. She moved to Birmingham, Alabama. And she worked as a beautician there and began singing on the local Country Boy Eddie television program. And in 1966, age 23, she moved with her three children to Nashville. It was there that she met an inspiring musician named Don Chappell, who would soon become her second husband. She was turned down by seven major labels as she was shopping her music around. And she finally met a guy named Billy Sherrill, the aforementioned Billy Sherrill. And he recorded her doing a version of Apartment Number no. 9, which was written by Johnny Paycheck, along with Fuzzy Owen and Bobby Austin. She recorded her version in September of 1966 at the Columbia Recording Studio in Nashville. It was released in October, bearing her new stage name, Tammy Wynette. Cheryl said she reminded him of Debbie Reynolds in the movie Tammy and the Bachelor and suggested Tammy as a possible name. It became a big hit and was included as the opening track on her debut album your good girl's gonna go bad which was released on epic records on may 1st 1967 just a few months before dolly parton's first record was released hmm. and her first number one came later that year when she recorded a duet with david houston called my elusive dreams so that's how tammy became established how she really you know became like a major label recording artist I'd like to stop our story before we get into the real heartbreak and play another song. And the one I wanted to feature is actually the last song on the album, One Final Stand. Now, Sean had commented uh, when, when we were listening to the first track, the titular opening cut, that he really liked the arrangements on this. Is that correct, Sean? Yeah, and I, I think that the final track is definitely a standout for that element. Yeah, so most of the strings on this were arranged by a guy named Cam Mullins, who had worked with, among many artists, he had worked with Johnny Cash, Perry Como, Hank Snow. But this last track was arranged by a guy named Bergen White. Does that name ring a bell to either of you? Nope. nope. There's really no reason that it should. He's a fairly obscure name unless you're really honed in on Nashville arrangers. Uh, in the early blog days, or I should say in the golden age of the blog days, the music blog days, I had found on one of those old obscure 60s, 70s psych blogs, an album of Bergen White's, an album under his name, a solo album called For Women Only. It's a really lush, awesomely produced, a light rock masterpiece, really. I had forgotten about it until I saw his name on here and actually ordered myself a copy off of the Discogs. Hopefully that'll come soon. Nice. 
among other things, he did the horns on both Tony Joe White and Elvis's versions of Poke Salad Annie. That's a song of some notoriety. He's worked with Dolly Parton, the Statler Brothers, Tim McGraw, Garth Brooks. So he's worked with a lot of people over the years. And so let's go ahead and play one final stand and listen to the arrangements of Bergen White. Just ain't showing I can tell something's wrong And I know before long You'll be going And baby, your tender touch The one that I love so much Is not It's a matter of pride Then let's push it aside And get together And if I give to you Love like you want me to Will it I was listening to this album earlier. I was kind of thinking that it's one of those rare albums that gets better as it goes. Like I, I actually like the second half of the album more than the first half. The arrangements get more interesting. I thought the content got a little more personal, a little more heartfelt. And the, that song's a perfect example. Yeah, that one it could partially be because it's a different arranger. But man, when I got to that one, when every time when I'm listening to this, it's just such a strong note to go out on. Oh, it's an amazing album closer a final stand i'd say (laughs) one final stand okay so do we want to start getting into some of the heartbreak now i could go for some heartbreak yeah sounds nice she's very good at conveying that in her voice and i can't remember who said it in one of the documentaries that i watched but if she was asked to do that that thing with her voice where it almost sounds like she's on the verge of crying she couldn't do it just like on command it just came to her when she was singing the songs and i could i can believe it like it really feels like when she's performing she doesn't see i mean i have no idea with you know she did work with billy sherrill was her main producer and obviously she was singing a lot of songs written by other people but i feel like she probably was a big enough artist and had enough control that she was picking the song she wanted to sing yeah if, if there's like one word to capture tammy wynette i feel like authentic is it even though that's like the fetishization that country is obsessed with is authenticity she feels like genuinely authentic in in her singing in her background all of it feels real that's something i actually want to kind of touch on too because i was reading that she got a lot of flack for songs like specifically stand by your man from the you know, growing feminist movement, people thought that that was the anti-feminist song. But in a way, her kind of, her range of songs that are like, seem to be more forgiving, more like, oh, men are just men, let them do what they want. And then other songs are like, no, you're hurting me because of this thing you're doing. In a way, that contrast also seemed authentic because these are just like realities that she had to deal with in her life throughout multiple marriages and trying to make these relationships work that were probably unhealthy. So I don't know. It's the, at first the range seemed inauthentic. And then the more I thought about it, the more authentic it actually felt. 
Yeah, that's like how being a human actually is, not just a yeah. slogan or value you just always live by. And another thing I was reading about that song is it was aspirational. She was entering her third marriage. She clearly like did not live by this stand by your man no matter what ethos in her own life, and she wrote it because she wanted to be able to do that with her new husband who was a psychotic alcoholic. So, Yeah, and they yeah, got divorced like less than a year after this, right? Uh, yeah, they, they were divorced not not too long af- after this album came out, yeah. Yeah, George Jones and Tammy Wynette were divorced in 1975, and that's the next thing I wanted to talk about was her marriages. That's where a lot of this pain and heartbreak comes from, because she came from a background with the belief that there was supposed to be one true love in your life, and... She really had a hard time finding that. She was married a total of five times. During the end of her first marriage, she received electroshock treatment during a depressive episode. Of course, we mentioned that she was married to Don Chappell. That was her second marriage. And she met George Jones. That that was kind of... Don Chappell was involved, had connections in the music industry and definitely helped with her career early on. But then she and George Jones ended up falling in love. And uh, one night while they were all having dinner together, George didn't like the way that Don was talking to Tammy and flipped the table over and was just like, that's it. You're not talking to her that way. I I love Tammy. She loves me. Let's get out of here. And she was with that. And they they left. And that was the end of that marriage. (laughs) That's crazy. She was married to George Jones in 1969. They had one daughter together, of course, recorded a series of popular duet albums during that time, but they had a very rocky and stormy relationship. At some point, he apparently took a shot at her. Once again, missed because he was too drunk out of his mind to aim a gun. Thank goodness. They were divorced in 1975. Wynette had a relationship with Burt Reynolds shortly thereafter, but ended up marrying another man a marriage which less lasted a total of 44 days. And I don't even know that guy's name. He's that unimportant. Her final husband, her fifth and final husband, was songwriter George Ritchie, who also worked as her manager in the 1980s. And if you hear George Ritchie's side of the story, he and Wynette had 20 wonderful years together. During that time, a strange thing happened where in the late 70s, She claims that she was kidnapped at gunpoint by a man who beat her and strangled her before throwing her out of a car and stranding her 80 miles south of Nashville. Now, a couple years after Wynette died, one of her daughters claimed in a book that her mother confessed to her that it was to cover up domestic violence from George Ritchie. I also read they dug up her grave because her daughter's thought that George Ritchie might have been the cause of her death. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of controversy there. I was reading about that too. That's that's some wild stories. What I'm about to talk to goes kind of right into that. She had a total of 26 major surgeries during her lifetime. That actually that number I've seen so many varying numbers between 15 and 36. So we'll say 26, that's a nice the median value on discogs. She developed an addiction to painkillers in the 80s, I, perhaps a result of all those surgeries. Demerol, Dilaudid, and Versed are just a few of those uh, of the many that she was addicted to. On tour, she was known to feign or cause injury in every city that she stopped in to gain access to more painkillers there until the doctors started catching on and word got out about her. At one point, she apparently threw herself off a stage just to get access to painkillers. So, serious addiction problem. She died at the home she owned with George Ritchie, which was formerly the home of Hank Williams, on the couch on April 6th, 1998 at the age of 55. And at the time, it was her personal physician who flew in from Pittsburgh, determined that a blood clot to her lungs was the cause of death. There was no autopsy done. A year later, her body was exhumed to settle a dispute over how she died. A a wrongful death suit had been filed against her husband, George Ritchie, and the personal physician that they may have had a cause in her death. And uh, traces of painkillers were found in her system at the time, but the coroner determined that she had died of cardiac arrhythmia. And so eventually that was settled out of court. George Ritchie 
that her husband was dropped by the daughters from that because he helped with uh, having her body exhumed. And so it ended up just being an out-of-court settlement with the personal physician. I'm looking at this record right now. George Ritchie has songwriting credits on two of these songs, and this would have been years before they were married. Yeah, they had been professionally involved for many years prior to that. Yep, he was he was one of the, he had written the last song we listened to, One Final Stand. He was involved in that one. Wow. Yeah, the, the more you dig into country music, it definitely seems like it's everybody's intertwined in some ways. Everybody worked together. There's a lot of common threads between all the records. You had mentioned that one of her early hits was written by Johnny Paycheck. Early in Johnny Paycheck's career, he was a band member in George Jones's group. So it's like everybody's just super tightly connected in the major country music world. Yeah. Well, uh, you guys have commented on really liking this record. And what song would you like to hear at this point? Oh, they're all so good. I really like the Chris Christofferson written tune, Help Me Make It Through the Night. Yeah, that's a good one. I'm fine with uh, checking that one out if we want to listen to that and just come back and talk a little bit more before we get out of here. Let's do it. It's another another B-side track. Track two on the B-side. Take the ribbon from my hair Shake it loose and let it fall Lines soft against your skin Like the shadows on the wall Come and lie down by my side In the early morning light All I'm taking is your time Help me make it through I would like to make a recommendation to the music buying public during this episode that Tammy Wynette deserves to be spoken in the same breath as those artists that if you're not into country music, you still respect. When we did the Willie Nelson Stardust episode, we talked about how both Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash are the artists that even people who don't like country music, like Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash. I'd say that Dolly Parton probably also could be added to that, into that uh, group. She would be maybe the third name that people who don't like country still listen to. Yeah, and especially with, with Dolly, I feel like there's been this growing movement over the last decade of people who really... Uh, respect her as a person and agree with her beliefs and activism, but maybe don't actually listen to her music all that much. Yeah, they might listen to Jolene or something. Right. <laughs> Do either of you have, and I'll admit, I don't I don't necessarily have a great knowledge of Dolly Parton's catalog. Or there, her first, what was her first album was like, Hello, I'm Dolly. That was the one that came out just a few months after Tammy Wynette's first record. Uh, she's probably, I mean, Dolly Parton's got a massive discography too. Are there any records that either of you uh, in particular know of being ones to check out? I don't own any myself and I'm I'm relatively new to the country music world as well. So I, I don't have a, a good knowledge of, of her catalog yet. 
Same. I would say the earlier the year on it, the better, though, from my experience in her discography. So I hadn't really listened to a great deal of Tammy Wynette until about a year ago when Sean had recommended checking out those Tales from the Tour Bus episodes that Mike Judge is of Beavis and Butthead office space fame he he put those out i think those are a few years old now two or three years ago they they did uh, one season on country artists and another one on soul and funk artists i don't think they've done a third season yet have they no i don't think they have they have not and so i saw the george jones and tammy winnett episodes there was there's it's a two-parter and i've been aware of george jones for a number of years uh, graham parsons the country rock legend that we've brought up several times so far on this podcast, he had once called George Jones the king of broken hearts. If Graham Parsons is giving someone praise like that, of course I'm going to check them out. Well, after watching that episode, I was like, holy shit. I don't, I don't even know what to say because the thing is that uh, despite their tumultuous relationship, uh, George Jones and Tammy Wynette did continue to work together professionally. And even Tammy Wynette's daughters have said that they think of all of her husbands the men in her life he's the only one who truly loved her and she loved him back so it's and it's a relationship that i think people in the country music world they it was something they liked to see you know they liked every facet of it i don't know if they knew the extent of some of the abuse that had happened until many years later but people love to see them perform together they worked really well together and you know they continued to perform together for many years, like through the rest of her life, on and off. And I noticed that George Jones seems to. It seems that he finally quit drinking the year following Tammy's death. He probably had a lot to process, and so he was, you know, sober for the last fifteen, twenty years of his life. Yeah, because he didn't pass away until like twenty thirteen. In kind of a long run. Correct. Yeah, and I, I had also been reading that George and Tammy were kind of one of country music's first power couples that was kind of a new thing in the country world of marketing them as this country music couple where they both had huge hits and played together really well. It was kind of them and Johnny and June Carter. Their two relationships around that same time period were heavily marketed and people just ate it up. True. There are a lot of albums that you can get for very cheap bearing both Tammy Wynette and George Jones names. And I've picked up a whole bunch of them after watching that episode of Tales from the Tour Bus from a certain DJ Hard Bargain. Well, I've heard about him. That would be Sean for our listeners. Sean is talking. <laughs> <laughs> you had picked up a whole bunch of those uh, of her records and one, one of them with George Jones, but most of them are her solo LPs. And I was like, hell yeah, I think, it, I think that I got like five or six of them for 20 bucks from you. Yeah, we got you loaded up. And so, this, and this one had one single from it. That's also a song, one of those weird cases where it was a number one song, but it, that uh, the title track from this, it wasn't on any of the collections or greatest hits ones until the essential Tammy Wynette in 2013 or 2014. Like just in recent years, it finally got included because she had so many hits that it, it's one of those ones that just slipped by the wayside. Yeah, she has so many albums. I had no idea until I was doing some research for this episode. Yeah, I saw that in the 70s alone, she had an album every year, most of those multiple albums per year. Yeah, it's crazy, crazy prolific. Yeah. Yeah, and then in the record collecting world, you also get into the whole thing we've talked about before with like the Pickwick Records compilations where there's all of her studio albums and all of her collaborations albums and her live albums. And then there's just a mountain of other compilations of singles and different tracks that are often marketed as if they were another album. So just going into a record store and looking for her stuff can be pretty overwhelming sometimes, but it kind of seems like almost all of it is good. So just take a chance on something if it's cheap. Yeah, this is, I, I chose this one of the many that I bought from you. Just the more I listened to it, it really started to kind of Really, I just started to find that it was almost so subtle at points that it really reveals itself on multiple listens. And it doesn't really have any of the big standout songs like Stand By Your Man or uh, Your Good Girl's Gonna Go Bad. So it, those are some of the other ones I have. And I don't know, I, I really like the cover for this one too. I think she looks awesome wearing a... Whoop. <laughs> 
She has like a yellow bow. And of course, her hair is always on point. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's a classy picture. And I, she was cranking out so many albums that I don't even know if like these photography sessions were like done for, for each one for a specific album or if they just had like a backlog of photos of Tammy Wynette. Because sometimes we're talking four or five albums a year. Right, right. In, in, including with George Jones, some of them. So it's just, it's wild. She had a good producer that she was working with too. And I, th- I think they had a good relationship and they were just able to put out a lot of excellent works. And it's, as far as I've seen, I didn't do Your Good Girl's Gonna Go Bad because that one does seem to be going for a little bit more now as well as the Stand By Your Man album. But uh, this one, you're probably going to find it for very cheap. Yeah, and I wanted to highlight a thing you just said, too, about part of your reason for picking this album was because it didn't have as many of the big hits on it. I think one of the really common things I see people doing with record collecting is going for the album that they can find that they know with most of the songs on. Whereas I think a really interesting way to go is to recognize the time period of their career that has the songs you know you like and then buy a record from that time period as well that has no songs you're familiar with and a lot of times you might find that's going to be your new favorite record by that artist and it's you can kind of develop a little bit more of a almost a personal connection to that record because you feel like man i love these songs and not everybody else does there's like these special things that you know isn't quite as hyped it can be a really interesting way to go about record collecting yeah yeah, and Sean, you asked me during the uh, while we were listening to the last track, we you know, we talked a little bit about Dolly Parton LPs coming back in, but you asked me for some other recommendations. Patsy Sled, who we mentioned, did the other version of Stan Home Woman right around the same time as Tammy Wynette. Her album Chip Chip from 1974 starts with Stan Home Woman. That's the first track. Looks like that goes for almost nothing. And that I listened to a few tracks from that, and she's excellent too, Patsy Sled. So that would be worth looking for. It's on Mega Records. Yeah, and then I've got a recommendation of something I've been kind of wanting to feature on the podcast at some point. From the angle of the the pop country crossover, there's an artist named Wendy Waldman that did kind of more pop records with country influence. And her first album, Love Has Got Me, from 1973 would be a really good one to pick up on the cheap if you're kind of digging that crossover style. I feel like the early to mid 70s is a really good time for for country music because it had evolved into something more, even in the commercial field. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was kind of the end of the Nashville sound and the sort of like bubbling up of something different. Yeah, and you had, you know, both the country artists crossing over into pop, but you also had a lot of pop artists showcasing their country music influence. It was a very interesting time for those styles. I just wanted to share a quick quote from Leanne Womack that I believe came from that outpouring of following Tammy Wynette's death. Very simple quote, but I think it summarizes Tammy Wynette perfectly. And and I really do believe that she should start to be said, you know, start to be another name that people who don't even like country music respect, listen to. Leanne Womack said, you knew she knew what she was singing about. We've touched on that in this episode. Like, you really feel like when she's singing, she's experienced it. And you could almost feel like she was trying to learn from it and maybe help the listeners learn from it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she was definitely a fighter. You know, she was dealing with all this stuff, was letting people know she was dealing with it and struggling through it in whatever way she could. Yeah, I read a quote as well that I liked. A friend of hers, I felt like it really highlighted the human thing that Tammy gets at that I, and I'm guessing many people identify with, but her friend said Tammy Wynette had no idea she was Tammy Wynette about her like (laughs) coming off stage and like she didn't recognize like the power she had and how good she was at capturing this voice and like struggled with self-esteem and struggled with clearly like other than addiction there's like codependency and addiction that you know everybody has their their things and I feel like she she captures that part of the human experience. Yeah, the fact that she was renewing her cosmetology license every single year, just in case the the whole country singing thing didn't work out. Yeah, she that is something that a couple of the uh, documentaries I watched really emphasized, and I'm glad you brought that up, is that she really didn't have that sense that she was a star. She was just doing what she liked doing, but... She she was a very humble 
personality. Yeah. So yeah, go out and get some Tammy. Y'all get your twang on. Get a little dirty. <laughs> so I'd like to propose to you two that we forego the tradition of talking over the final song and uh, I'd like for Sean, maybe you choose what you'd like to go out on and we can just kind of sail out on Tammy unless we have something really important we need to say over the outro. Oh, you know, just like give us money on Patreon, comment on our stuff on Facebook, follow us on Instagram. Uh, let's let's go out on this song with child, if y'all don't mind. That would be a great one to go out on. Cool. Thanks for listening, y'all. I'm Sean. See you next week. I'm Jeremy. I'm Peter. This has been I'd Buy That for a Dollar. It sure has. Know that I'm with child.